Hey, listeners, this is Marcia Epstein in Lawrence, Kansas on lawrencehits.com. It is early August, an August that's kind of exciting, I suppose, in that we have these natural events going on. The uh, eclipse coming up on August 21st, which is exciting and interesting. And I guess all of us could learn a little bit about what that means. But isn't it wonderful to have a focus that's bigger than ourselves and bigger than what's going on in our country? And I'll stop right there. Um, I am excited today to have another guest in a series of guests over the, the times of Talk With Me, a series of guests who have included people who have an affiliation with Epic Rights Press. So I get to say thank you, Wolfgang Karstens, for this guest. And I look around my room where I am sitting with my equipment to record. And I'm actually in the dining room of my Victorian home with my dog at my feet and a little painting of my dog on the wall. That painting is by another person with Epic Rights Press. That would be the fabulous Rob Platt. So it makes me smile to think about Wolfgang Karsten's Epic Rights Press and people go, it makes you smile. What? He's a punk poet. It's like, yeah, he's all about living, folks. That's what it's all about. And let me just mention, because it's relevant to my guest today, there's this cool thing through Epic Rights Press, an annual punk chapbook series. And now is the time to pre-order $40 for 12 chapbooks. You're going to be so glad you did. So now's the time. Head over to Epic Rights Press. Um, you can find them on Facebook. You can find the order stuff online. You can do this thing. And today, again, my guest is one of the poets of this year's Punk Chapbook series, as well as a poet of Lemex Press in California. My guest is Ron Lucas. Hey, Ron, welcome. Hi. Hi. I'm I, I get excited, so I don't want to overwhelm you, but I get excited doing shows and getting to know people. And you have already shared some of your poetry with me. And so I, you know, I know a little bit about you that way. And we've corresponded a bit. I would love to have you introduce yourself just a bit to our listeners before we actually start our conversation in other ways. So what 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 should people know about you? What are some some highlights of Ron Lucas? Um, I'm probably just going to regurgitate, uh, for starters, my bio note that, that I have, like, uh, for all of my, um, uh, literary magazine publications and, and for the, uh, the, um, Lummis Press, uh, book, uh, The Mother Goose Market, uh-huh. uh, which is a weird title, but, uh, <laughs> uh, it was an actual uh, market where I grew up in the rural Appalachian Mountains of southeastern Kentucky. Oh wow! So uh, that the picture, that photo, that is the real place. That is the real place, um, uh-huh. and I, it's it's apparently still there. I don't know because I don't go back. But they tell me it's a bed and breakfast now. So uh, I, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I swear, really. Uh, but uh, I, it was. It was an actual, you know, little market at that time, uh, and long before my time, apparently, uh, as well. Uh-huh. Uh, but uh, I, I guess basically what should they know is uh, I'm essentially an autodidactic former factory and warehouse laborer uh, who grew up in the rural Appalachian Mountains of southeastern Kentucky. Uh, born in a small town called Kendallville, Indiana, and I live in Fort Wayne, Indiana, uh, now, uh, have for years, um, which is the second largest city in the, the state of Indiana after Indianapolis. Not a bold statement, exactly, but, uh, <laughs> um, um, and I've been doing this poetry thing for off and on for, well, decades, probably. I think I think my first poem was published in like a, a uh, no doubt long since defunct little magazine called Metropolis, and like uh, the 
winter spring issue of like eighty nine ninety. Uh oh, wow. so okay. Yeah, I was I was doing well. I was just leaving college due to illness at the time but uh I never quite made it back. But uh yeah, that was that was uh I suppose that's that's a little bit about me. Uh, that's probably so you mentioned a little bit of some, some college, but also that you're self-taught as a poet. So tell me a little bit about that. Was What, what were you doing when you were in college? Oh, um, I, I was, I, I only went for one year um, um, to a, a small university in, in uh, uh, the Appalachian Mountains called Moorhead State University, uh, mm-hmm. where my dear old Gippy Hans was an English professor, and um, mm-hmm. she was the only good influence I had in my life growing up, really. Uh, um, but I was doing uh, arts and English. I mean, I hadn't really declared a major, but definitely, you know, literature and, and art. I've, I, I've drawn and written. I drew obsessively and have written obsessively all of my life. Uh, I'm, I'm only recently getting back into doing a little, a little drawing. Uh, I wanted to be a cartoonist. Like a, I was obsessed with superhero and monster comics as a child. Uh, and the first thing I wanted to do was like be a cartoonist. So lately, I mean, I just recently learned. I'm looking at right now a little piece I did. That's like the if I were a Simpsons, and it's like a little sketch of myself. I were a Simpson. Basically, I took the design of Homer. Uh, only mm-hmm. I had to make him scrawny because <laughs> I'm like five nine, and my weight fluctuates between like one twenty and one twenty five. So I'm kind of disturbingly skeletal on purpose. I mean, it's, it's intentional. I very much because I associate unfairly. I realize that I associate like corpulence with my father's. Uh, you know, uh, ignorant, redneck, racist, sexist, homophobic, xenophobic, paradoxically plutocratic, and hypocritically theocratic uh, mentality. <laughs> uh, and having read some of my books, you know that uh, shall we say my my feelings for my father are right. conservative and positive. <laughs> yep. uh, um, he was very, very. Uh, well, monstrous, really, when I was growing up, uh, more to my mother than to me, but I mean, you know, that affects a, a child mentally, yes. uh, emotionally, very profoundly, uh, which is what the entire book, Mother Goose Market, is yeah. about. That's, um, I don't think I mentioned to you, and I wanted to, uh, I realized last night, I have notes here, <laughs> uh, that like, the intention of that book was not to flatter myself, but I was trying to do with poetry kind of like what, um, um, uh, oh God, I'm going to blank on who wrote that. Um, Winesburg, Ohio. Uh, uh, oh That's my okay. God. That's okay. Uh, yeah. Oh, there's me. Well, anyway, um, I keep trying to say Sherwood. Oh, that is right. Sherwood Anderson. Okay. Sherwood Anderson, Winesburg, Ohio, which is a, a, a famous book of short stories that taken together loosely tell a larger story, which mm-hmm. is what I wanted to do with my little book of poetry through Lomax. Uh, my, my epic rights book, you know, won't be out until, until October, and that's called The Hole, which uh, <laughs> was the pejorative of Quarry Valley we lived in during my first, like, seven years of childhood in, in uh, Kentucky. Um, you know, like people would say, you know, they live down in the hole. Uh, uh, and, oh, was it ever our Hatfield and McCoy neighbors? Uh, really, uh, my father had a very Hatfield and McCoy-esque relationship with them. I saw uh, him, well, get shot repeatedly. I mean, he had a gun there he was shooting about when, when I was like seven years old, but I mean, he was just like covered in blood, just covered in blood. And uh, from like his top of his head to at least his waist, uh, there were like three of them, so he didn't fare so well. 
the thing is, I feel, of course, I mean, I'm armchair psychoanalyzing in here, but I feel as if basically he felt guilty because he didn't go off Clint Eastwood and, or whatever and kill all those guys who were, like, mentally handicapped. I mean, they had the minds of, like, children, really. Which is what the judge told him. <laughs> you know, that if you do anything to those men, I will view it as if you did whatever you do to them unto a child. Um, but um, I feel as if he basically took it out on my mother and myself for like the next 10 years, you know, mm-hmm. um, which is where a lot of the stuff in the Mother Goose Market book comes from. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, I'm, I'm kind of all over the place. You will then here or my mind will just race from one thing to another. Uh, people always say like their mind wanders off. I'm like, my mind doesn't wander off. My mind darts off like a hyperactive <laughs> child into traffic. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, so uh, I guess I was just uh, more or less trying to talk about the two books, the one of which is not out yet again, uh, uh-huh. the Epic Rise one. Uh, but um, should I should I go ahead and and uh, maybe read something? Um, sure. From um, I guess Mother Goose Market because I do have and I didn't I didn't clear this with Wolfgang but uh, it's promoting one of the Epic Rides books so I, I presume this will I hope this will be cool I didn't think of it until last night. It'll definitely be uh, cool. It'll definitely be cool. Yeah, no worries. Uh, no worries. Anything that that tempts people to head over to epicrights.org and buy the punk yeah. book series is all good. Right. <laughs> Yeah, well, great. That's, yeah. I mean, I, I assume so. But uh, this first thing I was going to read is from the Mother Goose Market from Mom okay. Express, the one that that is out. Uh, and this is the one that uh, I guess people they won't see it on the Mom Express, uh, momexpress.com, which, by the way, I should really thank, thank uh, uh, by the way, Wolfgang at Epic Rights, and I should really thank uh, R.D. Armstrong at, at Mom Express. Mm-hmm. Uh, because um, Artie really took a chance on me because I, I actually had, uh, when the Great Recession hit and everything, I got so, so depressed because I, I always say I, I lost my car, my job, my home, or my place, uh, and my mind. Um, uh, so for like five years there, the only five years literally within my memory of my entire life, I literally didn't write. I not only didn't submit, I didn't write. I was so depressed. Um, my my daughters and my mother were having to like bring me food and bring me like literature. Uh, my daughters were like, "Well, at least he's still reading. If he ever quits reading, we know he's going to die." But uh, uh, I, so Artie really took a chance on me when I got back in the game after like that little hiatus, read clinical depression. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but okay, um, so uh, if people go to Amazon.com, though, they will see you like the, because uh, it's also sell there, the Mother Goose Market. Uh, this piece, I had no choice in it, but it's apparently featured there. Um, you know how they show, like, excerpts in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, on Mother Goose Market, uh, by or from Mom Express. Uh, it's called Pillow Talk. Uh, one featured on the back of the book and on, like I said, uh, Amazon.com. But anyway, Pillow Talk. Uh, nights after he had beaten her again. The steel bed posts, painted brown, chipped and peeling, with pound the other side of my bedroom wall. Then, he would whisper, if you ever try to leave, I'll kill you. No matter where you go, I'll find you, and I'll kill you. Then he would snore, and she would be as quiet as if she were already dead. Um, that's, that's the... 
the one that's featured there. And that did really happen. That's, that's the best of my memory of the right quote from him. There was more. It got even more horrible. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it didn't fit the, the poem, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the whole book, obviously, Chronicles, you know, is, expresses some of what it was like living in that household with your right. father and your mother and, and the horrors. And unfortunately, that kind of experience is something a lot of people will relate to from their own childhood. So, you know, it's, it's important to me for people to know we need to talk about things and we need to know that in this case, specifically as children, we don't cause or have the control, the power to prevent that kind of abuse happening within our households. And uh, to me, those two things together saying, we've got to, we've got to be able to say them out loud and to, it's not our fault that that's about trying to shed the shame that often is the way that we internalize some of that stuff, you know? So, so oh, it's, yeah. it's a good, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Um, I, I, I agree so much with that. I always tell people, um, while I'm out having to try to play Salesman and promote the book, which is antithetical to everything about me, but, uh, uh, from the social anxiety to uh, my basically uh, old hippie beliefs. But, uh, yeah, uh, I always say that, uh, you know, one of the things I intend to do, I didn't consciously intend to do it, but I wanted to raise awareness about, uh, like, domestic abuse. Uh, but also, it is so, uh, I'm so glad you brought up the uh, the shame issue, yes. Um <clears throat> Because as a child, hey, first of all, my father didn't physically beat me because my mother wouldn't let him, but she certainly did catch it uh, mm-hmm. by getting between us. Um, but um, I remember that on the occasions when I was able to at least sneak out onto the porch, because he, uh, he normally didn't, he, he would not let me leave like when it was going on at least not after the uh, incident chronicled in one of the poems where uh, I ran off and got his mother on him. Um, mm-hmm. um, uh, I, I remember that I would sneak out onto the porch and I would like to see neighbor kids just standing in the road with their mouths hanging open looking up at our house because you could hear what was going on. He was, he was careful to hide it as far as, like, bruises and so forth. But um, um, my mother, in fact, is one of those few women I grew up around that I've never seen with a black eye. Uh, but, um, which, I mean, is horrible in and of itself. Yeah. And a lot of that kind of thing, by the way, is what the, the uh, Epic Rights Press book is about. It's, uh, I call it Thomas Wolfing them, you know, because, uh, like, the, you basically dish the dirt on like where you grew up, which I think was somewhere in Appalachia as well. Maybe Virginia, I'm not certain. Um, but, um, and you know, the whole you can't go home again thing. Um, but, um, I basically, I say I'm Thomas Wolf to my father with this book and the, the whole one uh, is basically like telling the tales more or less on, on all those other people around. But, um, yeah, I, I would be so ashamed when I would see, like, those kids, and I would know that, like, I had to lie for him when I got on the school bus the next morning, and I was going to be so mortified. Mm-hmm. But you're, you're absolutely right about the shame. That was, um, and, and especially, you know, the guilt, because I knew, like, my mother was more or less, I felt, anyway, like, taking my beating. Uh, and, I feel like my grandmother, my father's mother, blamed herself too. In fact, uh-huh. I know she used to say like, well, it's my fault. I spoiled him when he was growing up, you know, mm-hmm. which by the way, today would have been her birthday. I don't know, you know, I mean, she said she died in 97, 
Mm-hmm. But uh, today would have been her birthday. I have no idea how old she would have been. Uh, which is going to be my lead in to reading the first one that will be in uh, the whole uh, okay. the book from Epic Rights Press. Um, because the title of it is Rhoda, which was my grandmother's name. Uh, which, you know, being an uneducated hillbilly woman, she never pronounced her own name correctly. She, like everyone else there, they referred to her as Rhodey, and she did herself as well. But, um, should I, should I perhaps go ahead and sure. read the uh, one that will be the first one in the Epic Rides book as well? Certainly. Uh, all right. Um, Okay, uh, it's called Rhoda, which was my grandmother's name. Rhoda. One summer Sunday evening after church, as the other children played in the muddy yard and the voices of the men inside grew louder and louder and angrier and angrier over just how imminent the eternal fiery end was, my grandmother who never even knew how to pronounce her own name, sitting in the open, dirty doorway, whispered, Ah, they don't know what they're talking about. People were saying the world was coming to an end when I was just a little girl. She smiled, and I breathed for what seemed the first time. Um... Which is true, too. When you have anxiety, I mean, you really do feel like you can't breathe. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, everyone used to, well, make fun of me when I was when I was a kid, because I'd be going around sighing all the time. Uh-huh. And they would be like, why are you always huffing and puffing? You sound like a, I, I don't know, like, remember, I don't remember what they used to say, like, like a bull or something. Why are you always huffing and puffing on some kind of bull or something like that? I think they would say, I don't remember. But I was like, later on, I realized, like, oh, wow. <laughs> they were, I mean, they didn't know they were doing it, I guess. But uh, people were making fun of someone with, like, a, a panic disorder for having a panic disorder. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, uh, which, I mean, I still have. Uh, I, you're, you are a recovery specialist, is that correct? I, I'm a social worker, and I work with a lot of traumatic stuff and a lot of times related to suicide as well. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, that was something, well, uh, I was going to say I, I have a recovery. I have a, a psychiatrist. I'm on medication, mm-hmm. and I have a, a psychiatrist and a recovery specialist. Uh, uh, with whom I have an appointment the day after tomorrow. So, hey, I guess it's going to be too dark to sleep again, quote uh, Chris Cornell, who, speaking of suicide. Uh, um, the the singer who hanged himself a few months ago. Yeah, which profoundly affected my oldest daughter and I. Tom Garden were, his band were, were my favorite group in the 90s when my children were children and they grew up you know really like getting into especially my oldest getting into the music I got into mm-hmm. and then after Soundgarden broke up in 96 it became a uh, tool which um, a lot of people think like oh isn't that like metal um, but it's really very meaningful I the, if I had to be stranded on a desert island with one album, it's got to be Anima by Tool. But I don't listen to it very often because it's such an emotional experience for me. I mean, he was apparently sexually abused, which I was not. Uh, uh, well, not by my father, anyway. Um, but um, it, it is such an emotional experience for me to listen to that album because... Well, not all abuse is equal or the same. All abuse is abuse. And, and one really, I'm, or I, I think people who have been abused kind of identify with one another, you know, like, and, and so, like, uh, that full album and, and 
uh, I, it's really powerfully moving for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, but uh, we were talking about Cornell and suicide in your work, and um, <clears throat> and the fact that I have uh, a uh, recovery specialist as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I thought I saw that in like one of your credentials somewhere, though that that term. But, uh, yeah, the the panic disorder was, was so bad as a kid that by the time I was, like, 15, 16, I was, I was going to kill. I was planning to kill myself. I was just working on how I was going to do it. And that was, I, I actually believed in, in God, heaven, and hell, and all that stuff then, and that, uh, that you went to hell for committing suicide, but I did. I was past the point of caring. I just could not take anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wasn't having panic attacks. I was just living in a state of panic mm-hmm. constantly. And I couldn't take it anymore. And I happened to be with some friends one night, and they were passing a bottle, and it came my way, and I was all busily studying how I was going to kill myself. Each time it would come by, I'd take a twig and pass it on. And, you know... Uh, after a little bit, I noticed, hey, I feel better. Mm-hmm. After a little more, I noticed, hey, actually, I feel pretty good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, soon after that, I was like, actually, I feel great. Mm-hmm. And my last thought, I remember constantly because uh, I always, I always say I should have prefaced this, uh, and I'm I'm ripping it off from Joe Walsh, but uh, I got drunk once for thirty years. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I remember consciously thinking that night. My very last thought before I passed out was like, great, I don't have to kill myself. All I've yeah. got to do is do this yeah. all the time. Yeah. And, and I pretty much did for nearly 30 years. Uh, pretty much all the time. I've, and uh, I was an opioid addict for 10 years at that because I got hooked and I had cancer. And... Uh, I've only been completely off the opioids for a few years now, and uh, I didn't quit drinking because I, I refused to become what I call a totalitarian. Uh, uh, but I, relative to how I used to drink, I, I was considered to be like, well, I'm I'm a borderline teetotaler now. What's <laughs> <laughs> your display, huh? Pardon me? I said, much to your dismay, huh? Much to my dismay. Ah, well, <laughs> no, I, I really, <laughs> that whole thing of the waking you up, you know, the next day. It is great anxiety treatment. Honestly, really, I don't think there's a better anxiety treatment. The problem is the next day when the anxiety is even worse mm-hmm. and you have that that creeping fear about, oh, my God, what did I do? Yep. Uh, you know, so... Uh, and see, yeah, as you're, you're talking about this, I, I want to say, I think that what you're saying, a lot of people can relate to, and it's really helpful to, to have that out in the air for people to hear and know. I have talked to other people who will say that, you know, alcohol was more effective than any mental health medication they were given. But unfortunately, yep. like you're talking about is then there are some other problems it adds. I... One yeah. of the things one of the things in my work is we have a group specifically for people who have suicide thoughts and suicide attempts to come together in a support group and to be able to to help each other and themselves at the same time, which to me is the beauty of a support group kind of situation. And and recently when we were talking about sort of how things are going, Somebody said, you know, I don't, I don't want to go to work. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. The only thing I want to do is drink. And then after we had all said those introductory things, I, I said something like, um, like to, to the people in the group, I said, you know, y'all know that for me, I think the way that we say things is really important. And so I want to ask a question about that. 
And my question is, are you really saying that what you want to do is drink or that what you want is to feel like you feel after you've been drinking? And, right, right. What you want to do is feel better. <laughs> right, exactly. And that was an important thing to also get on the table. You know, the goal isn't drinking. The goal is feeling better. And when the only right. thing I have found so far that helps is drinking, then of course I'm going to do that when I, you know, when I have access, when I, you know, can get alcohol. So I think that puts it in a really different frame because to me it's it's like you experienced you're thinking about suicide and then you find alcohol makes you feel better. And right. both of those, those so-called solutions are because I need to change the way I feel. I need to feel better or I can't right. feel right. Exactly. bad. You know? And so then it's like, cool. Okay. So we know what we're headed for. We want to feel better. And then we can start looking right. at, are there some other ways? And for you, right. I want to ask you directly, is is your writing something that you would put in that category of things that help you feel better? Oh, absolutely. That's why I do it compulsively every night, and it's very much encouraged by my mental health professionals. Oh, yes. It is such a cliche, you know, but absolutely. The reason it's such a cliche is that it does help so many people. I love, I think it says, like, art saves lives on your, um, well, yeah. I was, yeah. Trying to get the uh, uh, podcast to play, I was all over the place so much okay. and didn't know what I was doing. So I don't know where I thought. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but um, which is so great. Uh, I was yeah. like, oh my god, because uh, the first time I saw the affirmation band tool at the mm -hmm. end of the show, the uh, singer said, uh, "If there is anything that you take away from this evening with you, we would hope." To Hope that it would be this art saves lives. Cool. Uh, and yes, yes. Actually, and then it kind of echoed, and, and it went into a song that I think is called Third Eye, uh, about him recovering his childhood memories of abuse. But uh, uh, yeah, so it was like art saves lives, saves lives, saves lives, and it was like, oh, that is so cool. And I did very much take it away with me, although I already felt that way. I just hadn't articulated it quite uh -huh. so succinctly. Uh, clearly, I do not excel at being succinct. <laughs> uh, excel. Jeez, I hate those two words. Excel and excel. I do not excel at being uh, succinct. Um, uh, my my uh, email address is unfortunately very apropos. Libertine. Okay, I'm less libertine than I used to be. So, I'm um, some standards, probably still quite a bit. But yeah, um, it, it is so true. Yes, definitely. Absolutely. It is It is. It is self-medication. And art was self-medication as a child. I always say art was my first drug. Um, like, I drew obsessively as, as a small child and, and I've always written. I can't, re I can't even remember learning to read or write. It just seems like I was always doing it. Ron, I'm going to interrupt you just briefly because we do need to take a short break. And I love that we're we're at this excuse me emphasis point of art saves lives. I love that. I love that. We're going to yeah, hear yeah. from a couple Lawrence, Kansas businesses that sponsor LawrenceHits.com. And mm -hmm. I get to thank Daniel Smith, who produces this show, allowing people to hear it. So we will be right back with more talk with me with today's guest, poet Ron Lucas. Welcome back. This is the continuation of Ron Lucas on Talk With Me. And we're talking about the importance of art, which I love. You know, you, you talked about early on that it was both visual art and words, writing and drawing that were really important for you and things that, that really help you have some experience of something good and feeling good in your life. And, and I, I love that. That is really how a kind of message that I, that I heard from people when I started having shows with artists and they would come out really spontaneously that people would end up saying, you know, this, this is what saved my life, you know? And, and yeah. so 
to me, it's one of those huge reminders. And I'm going to do a little plug here for Lawrence, Kansas. And so every year on September 10th, I host an event called Words Save Lives with poetry and stories and comedy and music. And this year we're adding drag performances too. And the idea being expression and and enjoyment and knowing that that we're not alone in our experiences and and laughing and all that stuff is part of the goodness of life that that really makes it worth living and that's important and so it's it's a really special thing for me to to have artists being there saying hey hey yes this is me this may be you and that's good we're we're beautiful you know it's cool stuff so so you've been writing and drawing and mentioned that you were getting back into drawing again which is cool and you mentioned comics and so i want to ask you a little question about that did you grow up reading comics is that something you were able to do uh yes i i i credit them to a great extent with um um which uh like older fundamentalists in my family uh I guess fun for my father here. People always ask, "Did he have any redeeming qualities?" He insisted on letting me read my superhero and monster comics when I was a child, despite his father and my other grandfather and all of them like really being up in arms against it. And I believe I was going to say I really credit it with like opening my mind and with like um, expanding my vocabulary. Mm-hmm. Um, as a very, as like a, you know, a small child, child, like a small child. Uh, and I think, honestly, that was what they didn't like about it. They knew that was what it does or what it was doing. And that was, you know, uh, there's a certain, like, anti-intellectualism to, uh, to a lot of people's, like, uh, really, like, fundamentalist type of beliefs, you know. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, if you learn about other things, then you might start doubting this other thing you're supposed to believe, like, uh, you know, like inherently, like uh, unquestioningly. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, but, yeah, I, I love, you know, um, it's pretty much the usual suspects as a child, you know, um, Batman, though, I was always, like, some obscure little character would always be my favorite. Like, in Batman, there was a recurring character who was essentially sort of a cross between, like, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and uh, uh, a werewolf only as a bat, and he was called Man-Bat. He was was not... He was, like, more, uh, like... uh, morally conflicted. I guess Batman's character is morally conflicted as well, but like he was sometimes good, sometimes bad, you know, it was, but uh, I, I have always liked uh, I think just intuitively like the, the moral uh, and ethical conflict uh, mm-hmm. instead of things just being all like totally like black hat, white hat, you know, um, clear cut. Um, like I love the film. I like the book too, but uh, you know, they always say the book's better. Well, it, the book is usually better, but <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> the book is almost always better. But I mean, uh, and no just Anne Rice. I love Anne Rice, but uh, I really, I think, I think the book interview with the vampire is is like very good. But I truly think largely on the strength of um, um, Brad Pitt's performance. It gets that great morally conflicted performance in that film that I just I really love. I feel like the the moral dilemma comes through more in the film than it does in the book, which is very rare, I know. But uh, nonetheless, um, I well, yeah, I kind of wandered off there or or darted off, um, well, but um. You were speaking, though, in general, to the power of literature, including comics, and 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 oh, yeah. that because of that power, because of the doors it opens, that that in some segments of the population and in people that in in your your community growing up really weren't so positive about people being exposed to things, to new things. Oh, and, totally. yeah. yeah. 
And as you were talking about it, it also makes me remember somebody who's very dear to me, who books were one of the things that helped her survive. And including things that are like Ursula Le Guin, messages that that stories, whether it's comics or or you know regular books that have stories of of fantasy and science fiction and different things where there are these themes of 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 you know heroes and and people defeating Bye. things and get, things that that maybe that person wasn't experiencing in real life but it truly instilled some hope you know it, it gave some belief that there there is goodness out there in the world when sometimes Bye. it's Bye. Not like from your own experiences yeah yeah um yeah that, that is so true uh from from like the comics uh well i mean i was also obsessed with reading books about dinosaurs at one point as a child i wanted to be uh i once said paleontologist it seems to me in the books then it was yeah. still just all part of archaeology uh -huh. um so i wanted to be an archaeologist uh which i guess now would be a paleontologist but um I had all those dreams, but um, I I went from like comics to uh, when I was adolescent kid, I got obsessed with like S.E. Hinton novels, uh, and from there I started getting more into like uh, classic literature or uh, like uh, Steinbeck. Steinbeck was an early first love, um, um, and then you know later uh, like Kerouac, Bukowski, um, and like. French symbolist poets like uh, Baudelaire, Rimbaud. Wow. Um, uh, well, you know, it was just kind of a natural progression or it felt natural. And speaking of feeling natural, I was going to, when I said I've been writing all my life, I just intuitively as a child um, always sent my writing off. I had no idea. I, I didn't even know anything about publishing or anything. But like I knew one address, which was my. Uh, maternal grandparents who had uh, uh, moved up here to Indiana. So he used to write these long, horrible, highly derivative novels uh, as a child and stick them in an envelope for a package, you know, and ship them off to the only address I knew, which was these, like, semi-literate, uh, uh, you know, hillbilly grandparents of mine in some tiny little town in Indiana. And I always wondered, and I forgot to ever, I, I never could get around to asking either of them while they were still alive, like, what did you guys think when you get those huge, weird packages from, uh -huh. you know, your grandkid in, in like, Kentucky, you know? Uh -huh. uh, then it occurred to me, you know, like, my mother probably didn't actually mail those off. She probably sneaked off of those and, like, didn't really, I mean, it didn't matter because, I mean, they wouldn't have been able to read them anyway, but, I mean. Just you know, it was just my point was that I just intuitively knew that I don't know you you write something you send it off somewhere. Uh huh. That's cool. I, Your first yeah, submissions. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so what? Yeah. What prompted you? What? How did you get up the courage to actually submit to the first journals and etc. Where you were published? How did you make that leap? Oh, that uh, seems to me like a bold one too. Right, right. Um, well, it, it was definitely um, encountering Bukowski when I was in college, um, uh, which originally every, everything kind of comes full circle. Originally, the way I encountered him was through the film Barfly, and the way that I, my, my only interest in that was, I saw Mickey Rourke's face on the cover, I, I've read interviews with him, I don't care for the man, but I love his work, he's my favorite actor, uh, I saw his face on the cover of this, you know, then video set, and, and like a gas station, and was like, oh my god, it's the guy who played the motorcycle boy in the Francis Ford Coppola film of, uh, S. E. Hinton's novel, Rumblefish, so it goes back to S. E. Hinton, which I went to from the comic books, you know. Mm -hmm. um, um, but, um, so, I discovered that film and loved it, and he was, you know, as autobiographical as 
pretty much all Bukowski's work was. And and uh, so he's a poet in it. And um, I, after watching the film, I don't know, 50 times, <laughs> I drove everyone crazy. But uh, I finally thought, you know, I wonder who wrote this movie. I want to. I want to see more movies they've written. So I looked. And I checked the credits, you know, mm-hmm. and it was like by Charles Bukowski, and I was like, okay, let's see who this screenplay writer is. And then it turns out he's a he's a poet. And so I found. I started going through the library at the, the university I was attending, and they had like one book by Bukowski. They had his 1972 poetry collection, Mockingbird, Wish Me Luck, and I got that. I think it was 72. I got that and read it obsessively, just devoured it, uh, and, and was just like, oh my God. You know, I I think maybe I can do this uh, because it was, you know, it was, uh, it was more accessible than, than, you know, like the sonnets of Shakespeare or whatever, which I was had to read mm-hmm. in college. Right. You know, at least you didn't have to write in old world English. No, nothing against that. I mean, although, to be honest, we I'm probably one of the few people who prefers Marlowe over uh, uh, Shakespeare, but uh, that may be blasphemous to say to a lot of people, but <laughs> but uh, if, if I'm going to read the Elizabethans, I would prefer Marlowe rather than Shakespeare. I I, I started checking out more of his work and and. I, I don't know. It just it, it gave me the courage, but also too the the aforementioned fifty uh, aunt English professor. Yeah. Uh, there was a a hippie uncle uh, who was a uh, public defender, which I think is is a great thing for an old hippie to become a public defender. You know, to help poor people who can't afford uh-huh. um, uh, counsel. I think there, there, they say there's a, there's an expression. I've read this somewhere. So someone has to give you permission to be a poet. I was talking to him on the phone one day, and, and he, I said something. I have no idea what now, but uh, you know, this was like thirty some years ago, or something, uh, or thirty years ago. And and he said, "There beats in you the heart of a poet, boy." <laughs> ah. And I was like, "Ah, well, I kind of converged with this idea I was getting from reading." Bukowski and, and others uh, uh-huh. because Bukowski name dropped a lot in his work. Uh, it was discovered probably like it's, through that and uh, the biography of Jim Morrison, No One Here Gets Out Alive. I think between those two things, I've pretty much got my lifelong suggested reading list <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, because there's a lot of literature mentioned and, and philosophy to uh, things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that was between those two things, just uh, reading the and thinking, maybe I can do this too. And and uh, my uncle saying that, because I, I had tremendous, tremendous respect for him. I used to call him my guru, which he didn't like. He was like, I'm not your guru, I'm just your old Uncle Gary. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but, you know, um, so between those things, I suppose... Uh, I screwed up the courage, and like I think it was the first place I submitted to Metropolis. I, I got a a poem, uh, which you know I've read it. I still remember it, in fact. But uh, and it's, I'm like, eh, you know, I hope I've gotten better. But it uh, it was like I guess very encouraging because I got published like the first time that I tried. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. Which is good because I discourage easily, man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, which I guess stands to reason, given yes. a lot of the background. Yeah. Um. Um. But yeah. So um. Then from there, um. I. I continued to be pretty successful at getting getting published in the literary journals. I didn't I wasn't successful in getting published in the uh the university literary journal where I attended until last year. <laughs> I was like, hey I wonder if they still have a, a literary journal at that university. Mm-hmm. And I got online and checked and lo and behold, uh it even still has the same name it had like thirty years ago and I was like, Well, gotta try them again. 
I had more mm-hmm. luck than I did <laughs> cool. when I was actually attending. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, that was that was fun. That was cool. Um, but uh, so, but, hey, I hey, thirty years later, I managed to get published in my university literary magazine. <laughs> yeah. How did you connect with Artie Armstrong for the Lum Express? I'm sorry? Oh, oh. Artie Armstrong? Lum uh-huh. Express. Okay, well, um, mm, I think probably when when the whole internet thing first happened, um, I, I think you know my lack of fondness for technology. Uh, <laughs> my girlfriend at the time <laughs> got a laptop and I was probably like just being generally negative about the whole thing and about the whole internet, you know, concept. And she was like, Ron, the internet is anything you want it to be. What do you want it to be? I said, okay, fine. As if it were a challenge. And I was like, I want it to be a small press poetry market. She said, okay. And she got on there and just, you know, typed something in and all these more, all these, you know, publications came up, much like the old print uh, writer's market that would come out every year, which was what I was accustomed to using, and a typewriter and, you know, uh, envelopes and stamps. And, um, but uh, for some of the, some of the uh, magazines still go all retro and you have to use envelopes and stamps, which is <laughs> kind of cool. But, uh, but uh, <clears throat> and uh, that was probably where I first discovered Mama's Press and I discovered like the Little Red book series and and got um, I'm looking at it right now Feeding the Animal by John Thomas uh, with art by Claudio Parentella I may be butchering that name Um, uh, Thomas was a contemporary of Bukowski and one of the few contemporaries he ever spoke positively of Um, and that little uh Lomax Press book remains one of my prized possessions, which is why I can see it readily because I keep it displayed. Uh-huh. Uh, I truly believe in the George Carlin victim of uh, one of the secrets to happiness is to surround yourself with the things you love. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like you were referring to the uh, flat painting and so forth mm-hmm. uh, of your dog. And, right. Um Rob Plath, I should say. When you just say Plath, you will hear you will think Sylvia. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, but uh, which, by the way, I love her work too. I got on a big kick with like last winter of like reading or rereading her work and reading biographies on her. Um, but um, so at the time he was doing an online journal called Doofus. Uh, I mean, in addition to all the other stuff, you know, the uh-huh. Little Red Book series, et cetera. Uh, and I got published a couple of times in Doofus. And that sent a piece for Doofus uh, about a night I spent at uh, Musso and Frank on Hollywood Boulevard. Uh, getting drunk, of course. Um, <laughs> you know, this was still during that 30-year period. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh and I had gone there specifically to find a specific bartender, Ruben, I forget his last name, who had known Bukowski. And because wow. and, and Bukowski used to uh, 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 go there, and, and he lived uh, at one time at Hollywood and Western, uh, uh, I think it was. Um, um, so uh, I wrote a piece about that night. Um, and submitted it to Doofus, and and already, again, I had had a piece or two in Doofus, but then already wrote me back and was like, I want this piece, but not for Doofus. I want it for an anthology called Last Call, uh, The Legacy of Charles Bukowski, uh, that I'm doing, and I was like, okay, great, even better, sounds good. <laughs> uh, you know, because um, <clears throat> it's, it's one of the few more perfect bound books and so forth that I have been in that's actually in my actual bookshelf with all my like, you know, uh Celine and Rambo and um Carolac and mm-hmm. you know, yeah, my just my as I have a separate little uh 
shelves will really like look into like all my small press stuff mm-hmm. because a lot of them are, are like the metal stitch, you know, just stapled like little magazines and so yeah. forth. So they don't really like work in a bookshelf all that well. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so when, when that anthology came out last fall uh, from Mama's Press, Hardy uh, was like, you know, we're, we're going to have a little uh, celebration, and guess where we're going? Musso and Frank, you know, you should come. And I was like, um, I'm back in Indiana now. Because, <laughs> you know, I have daughters here. But um, when I got in contact with him again, after that little five-year hiatus, again, reading clinical depression, uh, a couple of years ago, I was shocked. I mean, because he has to deal with a lot of people. But for Iowa, he was like, oh, yeah, I remember you. We had dinner plans, but you couldn't make it. Cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was so great. I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe you remember me, let alone that you remember that, you know, uh, we had like dinner plans and I couldn't make it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, and so we started talking, and he, well, I mean, you can argue, he always says, pitch me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and I had just written all this work. I had, because of the whole thing, when I said I lost my place and so forth, uh, I had just come back into my father's orbit, uh, for the first time in years. And I was like, oh my God, you're kind of still, I mean, minus, as far as I know, the physical violence, uh, you're kind of still just as horrible as you always were. I mean, you say such horrible sexist things and racist things. I mean, like you're, and you're still kind of like mentally and verbally very unpleasant, if not abusive. Well, abusive. To my mother, I'm like, God, you're still horrible. And it just, all this stuff started coming out. And I developed this feeling, perhaps this is bad in me. I don't know. Perhaps this is unethical. I often feel that it is. I'm like, you do not get to take this your grave with you because he's still totally gaslight about everything. None of it happened. Yeah, None of it happened. Yeah. I dreamed it. I'm crazy. I was drunk. I was on drugs. I thought, well, I was drunk and on drugs 10 years later, self-medicating because of all other things, you know. Um, so I always have to sign books. With like, There's this quote from... Uh, the French philosopher Michel, I think that's how it's pronounced, Michel de Montaigne. Um, uh, one, of the, one of the hazards of being an autodidact is you don't really know how to pronounce things because he didn't have a class where some professor was saying it. But, um, you, but you know this stuff, and that's what's more important. Whether you pronounce it, pronounce it correctly or not isn't the issue. So... Um, I hope so. <laughs> yeah, it is. There, there is, there's, uh, we're approaching those last, the last minute of the show. And so I'm, I'm going to have to leave people hanging a little bit about the ongoing connection that you established with Artie Armstrong and that resulted in Lummox Press publishing yeah. Mother Goose Market. And to let people know, again, this has been Talk With Me with Ron Lucas. His poetry book, The Mother Goose Market, was published by Lummox Press and is now available through the giant online bookseller. I still encourage people, you know what, ask your local indie bookseller if they can get it for you. Um, and a new book is coming out as part of the Epic Rights press annual punk chapbook series so those books 12 chapbooks 40 bucks for the series available in october available now by pre-order at epic rights e-p-i-c-r-i-t-e-s dot org and publisher wolfgang karsten says if you pre-order you're going to get a little something extra too He'll make it worthwhile. It'll be cool stuff. And you'll get to experience 12 poets, Ron Lucas being one of them. It's a cool thing. So, Ron, thank you so much for joining me today on Talk With Me. Thank you so much for having me.
It's been great. It's been inspiring. It's one of those shows that highlights, as I say, this is at the intersection of art and mental health and that reminder that art does save lives. Pretty cool stuff. Thank you and so long to our listeners. Ron and I are going to be a little quiet and then we might talk some more off air. Thanks and so long.